This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, I'm Elise Lunen, the Chief Content Officer here at Goop. For those who are new, I co-host the Goop podcast with Gwyneth, and it was such an honor to get to sit down with today's guest, Andrew Solomon. Thanks very much to our friends at Flow who made this episode possible. My unofficial New Year's resolution was to drink more water. Six months later, I'm pretty proud to say that I've been sticking to it, and it's gotten easier since Goop teamed up with Flow. Flow is naturally alkaline spring water. It's packaged in sustainable paperboard packaging with a plant-based cap. It contains more healthy minerals than most bottled water, and it comes in organic flavors like cucumber mint and blackberry hibiscus. The flavors are made without the sugar, artificial sweeteners, calories, and GMOs that are unfortunately found in a lot of other grab-and-go options. To see why people love Flow, head to flowhydration.com and enter code GOOP30 at checkout for 30% off your order or first month of subscription so you can have Flow delivered right to your door. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Andrew Solomon is a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, the president of Penn American Center, and an activist for LGBTQ rights and mental health. He's also an award-winning author. He's written several books, including Far and Away, The Noonday Demon, and Far from the Tree. I had a powerful conversation with Andrew. We talked about judgment in ourselves and others, why we want so badly to be considered normal, and why that is flawed. We tackled a lot of things. We talk about dwarfism, autism, what it was like for him to grow up gay, and how his parents influenced his well-being. We talked more about parenting, 
the importance of loving our children, and encouraging them to use the challenges they are faced with to find profound meaning in life. And I accept that my parents did the best that they could and that they had trouble with accepting me for who I was, but you know, they loved me all the way through, and I've teased apart love and acceptance, and love, I think, should be there and usually is there from the time a child is born, and acceptance is a process, and it takes time, and it's a struggle, and it's a struggle for everyone, whether their children have horizontal identities or not. Let's get into my chat with Andrew Solomon. Well, thank you for being here. This is a great honor. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're in New York. Yes. And I went to Yale, and I was there in 2001 when the Noonday Demon came out. And I believe, unless I'm having a break, that you came to speak. And I saw you speak because my thesis advisor was John Rogers. Oh, who was the master of Berkeley then yes, and is a great friend of mine. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, that book, as you know, was so monumental. And I remember being floored. One, that you were destigmatizing depression. And two, at that time, you were a gay writer when there weren't that many to behold. And my brother is gay. And I, it was, I had come out of boarding school. I went to St. Paul's, where it was interesting to read about your childhood. But even at that point, faggot was still being flung all over the place. And it was not a time. I think now we're like, oh, it was a big deal to be gay. But it was such a big deal. Well, we're in Donald Trump's America. That's and true. <laughs> there are religious liberty laws being passed left, right, and center that allow for discrimination against gay people on the basis of your faith. You can deny medical services. You can refuse to have gay people live in housing that you own. You can do all kinds of things. In many states, you can fire people from their job just for being gay. Right. So I feel like it's changed for people like us, exactly. people in a position of relative privilege. But right. it has not changed so much for the, the larger population. Yeah. And I've been kind of an activist, and I got involved in the National LGBTQ Task Force um, because the task force specifically works on issues of the intersection of poverty and sexuality or gender identity. And I feel like it's really important not only to be making things even better for middle-class white gay people like me, but to be trying to make them better for the, for the yeah. community at large. No, it's true. But it, it seemed remarkably brave at the time. I'm glad to hear that because it felt like a terrible challenge at the time. Yeah. And afterwards, I've sort of regretted that. I was closeted when I was in college and then came out in a kind of gradual, seeping way. And I think publishing Noonday Demon was the point when I really began going out and saying on public stages, okay, I'm gay and this is my perspective as a gay person. And it was really hard to do at first. I mean, now I've done it so much that it's, it's almost a stretch of my memory to remember how anguished I felt some of the time about it then. Yeah. But I just had reached the point at which I was really tired of being dishonest about who I was. And I think I felt that I had been dishonest about being gay. And then there was a big temptation to be dishonest about being depressed. And mm -hmm. I thought... No, I'm I'm really done with dishonesty. I, I am who I am and I have to say it. So that's yeah. what I did. No, it it was and is remarkable. And then far from the tree. So I this idea and, and hopefully you can take people through it that I had never heard before, but this idea of this horizontal identity, I think is so 
interesting. And maybe it's the most obvious concept ever, but you know, the idea that we have these these vertical identities makes a ton of sense. And then this horizontal identity worldview. Like, can you explain what that is? Sure. And the reason you've never heard it before is because I made it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we all have what I've called vertical identities that get handed down generationally from parent to child. So your ethnicity is usually a vertical identity, your nationality, your language, frequently your religion. And while all of those identities can be very challenging, or at least many of them can be very challenging, there's never been an attempt to cure or address them because they run in families. So it's easier in the United States nowadays, I think still, to be a white Christian male than to be pretty much anything else. But people who were born into African-American or Asian or Muslim families are brought up to have a pride in who they are by their parents. And we recognize that what we really need to address are the defects in social acceptance. Mm -hmm. But horizontal identities are identities you have and that you don't share with your parents um, or with other members of your family. So being gay, being deaf, being autistic, having multiple severe disabilities, having schizophrenia. I looked uh, when I wrote my book at horizontal identities like being a criminal, being transgender and so on and so forth. These are all ways of being that you have to learn from a community around you Mm -hmm. and that, that people have always tried to cure and to address and to resolve and the discovery of a community often comes only in adolescence or thereafter because your parents didn't even know there was a community or they were made incredibly uncomfortable by the community that they knew there was or something else was going on that made that an impossibility for them to strengthen your sense of identity. So then you come along in adolescence or thereafter and you find community and you begin to get a sense of identity from them and you move away from thinking of yourself as the defective person with an illness and you move toward self-acceptance and even sometimes celebration and hopefully bring everyone else along with you. Right. And I loved the through line throughout the book about sort of the judgment that we all bring on other people's lives and this perception that if you are a person who happens to be deaf, that you must desire, like long to hear or that you so desperately want to be, quote unquote, normal and how flawed that is worldwide. Yes, I found it particularly in the deaf community, and I had a real moment of revelation. I had been doing research on deafness, which was really what led me into this book. It was an article I was doing for the Times Magazine back in the mid-90s, and I went to a meeting of the National Association of the Deaf, and I walked into this gigantic room, and it was very brightly lit, and everybody was talking in sign language, and there was sign language flying off the ends of everybody's hands, and I walked in, and I had this moment of thinking, oh, I wish I were deaf, Mm -hmm. you know, which is not to say that I wished I couldn't hear. My hearing is obviously very useful to me and I would never want to give it up. But I felt like there was a community there that I couldn't really be part of. And I could have learned sign language, but I still would never have been part of it in the way that the deaf people were part of it. And I saw that there was a special intimacy in that and that for the people who were part of that community, it was a joyful community to be in. And they were rushing toward one another and it felt warm and it felt embracing. And I felt like a marginal outsider and that made me sad. <laughs> but I, I think that those parts of the book are so powerful. And also this through line of it seems like you met very few parents throughout this book who regretted the lives, who regretted having children. Yes, I think most parents reach the point. I mean, everyone has days when they regret having children, I suppose. But 
I'm sure my never. parents did. I'm sure your parents <laughs> never did. No, that was really the finding of the book, is that most of us who have children have children who are flawed. And most of us love our children with the flaws that they have. And most of us don't spend the whole time wishing that we had completely other children. We may wish that the children we have behave differently than the way they behave or said different things than the things they say. But essentially, we love our children with their flaws. And I always say, you know, if some glorious angel were to drop through the ceiling and offer um, anyone the chance to exchange the children they have for other better children who are, I don't know, cleaner and more polite and brighter and even nicer, people would pray away the angel and hold on to the children they have. You love the children you have, and you love them with whatever qualities they have. And so it shouldn't be so surprising that parents of children with these various challenges and disadvantages, love the children they have, and they don't want to exchange them. And people have their experience of the world, and everyone has deficits, and everyone has strengths, and we all spend our lives trying to downplay the deficits and to strengthen the strengths, as it were. But we are who we really are, and the journey of self-acceptance that the children in the book were on was one that resonated a lot for me as a gay person. Mm -hmm. You know, I really didn't want to be a gay person when I was younger, and I would have done anything to make it go away. And then bit by bit, I came into a sense of connectedness and pride and had friends who were part of a gay world and thought, you know, it's not that I think gay life is better than straight life, but it's my life, and my life has turned out to be rewarding. And that was what, over and over again, these people with various really extreme challenges in some cases seem to have come to. Yeah, I, and uh, like everyone now, I have friends who have children who are on the autism spectrum. One of our closest friends growing up was a dwarf. And mm. you observe these lives, I think, with wonder, you know, my friend who's a dwarf, who now is married to a dwarf and has a daughter who is a dwarf, she had a remarkable life and incredible parents who never saw it or did not seem to perceive it or present it as a disability. And yes, like people would were constantly asking her questions and looking at her, and I'm sure that was very annoying, but she was she's incredibly gifted. She's an incredible athlete. Mm. Uh, tennis player, skier. Um, wow. Yeah, no, she was r remarkable on every level. But that, I think, was probably a really important experience for me and my brother as well to, like, marvel at difference as difference, not as something that's less... You know? Yes. Mary Dalton, who's the head of obstetrics at Columbia, said that the most difficult diagnosis she can give to expectant parents is dwarfism. Mm. She said people recoil and they think this is going to be a freak and they think, well, how can I have a child who looks like this? And many of them consider um, termination and so on, which is odd because unlike many of the other things that are picked up prenatally, dwarfism is ultimately not going to get in the way of someone having an extraordinary and remarkable life. I mean, as you say, people stare at you, and that can be very annoying, and everybody remembers you, and you can't remember everyone. But right. I now have a, a bunch of dwarf friends, and I've been impressed at the resilience they've been called on to have in the face of being stared at and feeling like a spectacle, but what good and rich lives they've had. And, yeah. you know, it's not like people with intellectual disabilities. Some of them have physical disabilities, depending on the form of dwarfism they have. Some of them have more of them. Some of them have fewer of them. Those can present their own challenge. But the fact of being of short stature actually, in some ways, can 
enrich their lives. And I think it makes such a difference how parents find out about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's one dwarf friend of mine, Clinton Brown, and his mother described after he was born going to doctor after doctor who said, he has diastrophic dwarfism. Are you prepared for this? Are you prepared for that? These terrible things are going to happen. How are you ever going to deal with it? What are you going... And she finally, despite not having vast educational or financial resources, found her way to the best doctor for dealing with skeletal dysplasias, who was Stephen Kopitz at Johns Hopkins. And she took him in there when he was a year old. And Dr. Kopitz looked at Clint and picked him up off the table and held him up in the air and said, let me tell you, that's going to be a handsome young man one day. Mm. And she talked about how her whole life and experience was utterly transformed by that. Isn't that interesting? And I was at Clint's wedding last year. He's had a great life. He has a great life. Yeah. No. And I was, as a child, too, with Francisco, I was always sort of in awe of the accommodations that were made and slightly jealous. Like, she she was the only one who could drive her car, <laughs> and it was outfitted for her. And I was an uh, incredibly good skier, but she was faster than I was. So she's remarkable. But And I can't imagine that. I can't imagine her as anyone different. Right. That's the thing, is that at a certain point, you reach the stage of thinking, I don't want to erase my life and be somebody different. You know, it moves into the territory of cliche, I am who I am, and um, Broadway songs, I think, that um, take up that theme. (laughs) But that's what people get to. And, you know, one of the dwarfs I was talking to, who has a dwarf husband, said, but I I love my husband and I love our children. And if I'm to imagine a life of not being a dwarf, I would never have met him and I would never have had these children. And she said, probably I would have married someone else and I would have had other children and I would have loved those children too. But I don't want to imagine away the life that I have and the people I love. Mm, I love that. I also love this quote. You A wise psychiatrist once said to me, people want to get better, but they don't want to change. Yes. Um, I still remember hearing that for the first time, and it's really true. I mean, to some extent, what the psychiatrist was talking about was the fact that people would come in with unhealthy psychological habits, and they would want the psychologist to to make them better, and they didn't want to the real work of altering themselves that was involved. But, um, <laughs> but I think it's true. People want to sort of get better as themselves. They don't want to be turned into somebody else. Uh, totally. And I think, you know, the book is so fascinating, too, because it's you're talking about prodigies. You're talking about children of rape. You're talking about children who are transgendered, autistic. Like, it's such an interesting spectrum. And again, you can't put value on it, right? It's not like you're writing a book of here are all here are just extraordinary things, right? That can happen um, in the process of being human, and that sort of refusal of judgment. I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I was in India several years ago, and I was with another writer, and she had never been to the developing world, and she we were driving in Rishikesh. And she was sort of looking out of the window in horror and dismay and pity. And I was like, God, I like pity you. How can you judge another, someone else's life as being inferior to your own simply because it doesn't have the same trappings? Yes. And I feel as though that's a mistake, not to yeah. get 
too political here, but that's a mistake that's being made quite broadly at this moment. I think there's a presumption in our foreign policy that everyone would really like to be like us and everyone would really like to live here and live more or less our lives and that we have to sort of keep the barbarians out from the gates. And yeah. the reality is that people mostly want to live in and be in the place they are and make things better. I mean, there was a an experience I had. My most recent book was a book of my international reporting called Far and Away. And I was in Rio, and I was interviewing people in the favelas, which are the slums of Rio. And I was in one of the really barren, desperate favelas that was way out in the middle of nowhere near the airport, nowhere near the ocean, and nowhere near anything beautiful. Some of the ones um, right by the Zona Sul are quite wonderful, you know, at least to, in terms of their views and their position and so on, difficult to live in for obvious reasons. But anyway, and I said to her, so I said, do you feel like if you're able to really succeed at what you're doing, she was working on a theater project, I said that you'll want to go and live in the Zona Sul, which is the fancy district in Rio. And she said, if you could bottle the joy in this place, you could sell it in the Zona Sul. There's a real sense of reward and you know, there was also a real sense of what was desperately wrong with the place where she was living. But I think that assumption that your friend was making and that I've encountered over and over again from friends, from other people, um, is very dangerous. The assumption that everybody really does want to be the same, the assumption that there is such a thing as a sort of normal ideal and that everyone is aspiring to it. Um, totally. It's an artifice. Yeah, and that you can bottle normal achievement and that that's some sort of antidote or that that means that you don't struggle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was an interesting study that showed that once you get above the poverty line, your degree of happiness is determined more by your other experiences than it is by your financial status. If you're below the poverty line, you struggle and suffer. And the poverty line, I don't mean necessarily as it's defined by the federal government, but people in poverty are having a very difficult time and they would do a lot better if they had mm -hmm. more. But all their basic needs met. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once you get your basic needs met, the things that are going to make you a happy person or not a happy person aren't mostly whether you have an extra $10 a month one way or the other. Yeah. And it seems like, at, at least in Far From the Tree, too, that you explore that mindset. And, and maybe you can tease it out more. But the idea that some families are sort of happy are are brought together in their resilience in face of having difficult situations and others are destroyed and that it's really like what what was that what in 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 what you observed what is it that soldiers people together I don't even know if I use that word correctly but what 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 is it that inspires that resilience you did use the word correctly oh good <laughs> <laughs> I was really interested in resilience and really interested in why some people confronted with what seemed like relatively minor challenges went completely to pieces in the face of them, while other people confronted with what seemed like much more significant challenges found worth and meaning and managed to lead good and rewarding lives. Mm -hmm. And I came to think that a lot of it had to do with decision-making and with the way that people choose to frame what happens to them. So there was a study that was done some years ago in which a group of women, and I mention it in the book, group of women, it's always women in these particular kind of studies, but were asked shortly after giving birth to children with a variety of challenges and disabilities, do you anticipate finding meaning in this experience? 
And then the researchers went back 10 years later. And the children of mothers who had said that they anticipated finding some kind of meaning in the experience were doing better on every possible clinical measure mm. than the children of mothers who had said that they did not anticipate finding that meaning. So it had enormous consequences for the child, for the mother, for the family, for everyone. And one of the mothers I was writing about who had two children with very severe disabilities, both of whom died in adolescence, said, people always give us these little sayings like, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. But children like ours are not preordained as a gift. They're a gift because that's what we have chosen. Mm. And I feel like it's not an easy choice. And I'm not saying that the people who aren't able to make that choice are failing their children by not being able to, but do your best. Try as hard as you can to find something that's going to be significant or meaningful or a way it's going to make you grow or a way it's going to expand your spirit. Find something positive in it, and that will allow you to do better for yourself and for your child. Mm, I love that. And it seemed, too, like parents struggled the most mightily in situations where they were anticipating or wanting to believe an emergence, right, that their autistic child would come out, would come through the silence or the fecal smears and have a becoming, right? And that others did, hadn't, didn't have those expectations and those expectations weren't dashed? Yes. I think being accepting of your children is always great, but there are really two big obligations to parenthood, one of which is to change your children. You have to change your children. If you don't change your children, you're engaged in neglect. You have to teach them some manners. You have to get them an education. You have to give them, hopefully, some moral values. There's all this stuff you have to do that involves changing your children. And the other thing you have to do is to celebrate your children for being exactly who they are and make them feel really good and really terrific about who they actually are. And some things clearly need to be changed, and some things clearly need to be celebrated, and a lot of things fall in a foggy middle. Mm -hmm. And parents of children with differences and disabilities are constantly trying to figure out, A, can this thing I want to change be changed? And B, what is the cost, the emotional cost to my child of saying we need to change this very basic thing about you? And autism is a particularly good area. I mean, there are some people with autism who seem to be banging their heads against the wall in a corner and are clearly miserable. And how can you help bring them out of that experience of autism enough so that they can be at ease in the world? Are there ways to do it? Sometimes there are, sometimes not. But there are also people who have got autistic ways of thinking who are actually quite happy in their autistic ways of thinking and just want to be allowed to live in the way that they live and with who they are. So you might want to teach them some communication skills or some other skills that can be difficult for autistic people, but you don't want to say to them, you don't have as much value as an autistic person as you would have if you could act more non-autistic. Right. And it's a balance people have to find, and it's a tough one. Yeah, and it's that battle for conformity versus neurodiversity and this idea again of like trying to normal is better or whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> <laughs> I just actually read an amazing book about normality, which put forward the idea that the concept of the normal emerged simultaneously in mathematics and in medicine. Mm. And in mathematics, the normal meant the average. It was the center point of the bell curve. It was where most of the statistics fell. And in medicine, it meant the well-functioning. So there was a normal placement of your organs, for example, that allows them all to function well together. And so in a way, it 
represented an ideal. And the place where we got into big trouble was in the early years of the 20th century, when the average and the ideal somehow got conflated together. And we thought the average was the ideal. Mm. And that was an idea that worked very well at a time of industrial manufacturing, because there was you know, a need to sort of make things to a prototype rather than to make them to individual sizes and measurements. But we're still living with the legacy of that. And actually, the average is not the ideal. The average is the average, and the ideal, insofar as it exists, is the ideal. And they're really two separate ideas, and we need to tease them apart again and break that. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Idea of normality that so dominates us at this point. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. My job at our in-group health wellness summits is to man the chat room with Gwyneth. GP typically does the first and last talks of the day, and then I moderate the panels and one-on-one conversations in between. You've probably heard one of those on the podcast, as we've recently been sharing some of our favorites from our last in-group health in LA. It takes a village, maybe a city, to bring those summits to life. And one of our partners in wellness has been the team at Flow, who is joining us for another in-group health the weekend of June 29th in London. My team jokes that Flo's naturally alkaline spring water is the secret sauce that keeps me from passing out on the panel stage after moderating several back-to-back conversations. They also know that I could probably go all day without drinking any water if I didn't have Flo on stage next to me. What's so great about Flo? Here's what I've learned. Flo is naturally alkaline spring water with a pH of 8.1, meaning its minerals come right from the earth. Minerals like magnesium, calcium, bicarbonate, and potassium provide the alkalinity and electrolytes. In other words, you're getting the good stuff. Flow has six organic flavor blends, like my new favorite, blackberry hibiscus. They're made without juice, sugar, sweeteners, calories, preservatives, or GMOs. Again, just the good stuff. The other thing to like about Flow is that they use sustainable paperboard packaging, and their cap is plant-based. Flow plaques are 100% recyclable and 68% renewable. And they have some good perks. Shipping, for example, is always free. If you head to flowhydration.com and use promo code GOOP30, they'll also give you 30% off your order or first month of subscription to have Flow delivered right to your door. We're in the process of building out our new test kitchen at Goop. While that's really exciting, it means we don't get as many leftovers from our food editors around lunchtime. 
which means people have been ordering lunch a lot more often than usual, which means we get a big delivery from Sweet Greens every day. I think it's primarily the quality of Sweet Greens ingredients and how they source them that sets Sweet Green apart from other fast, casual options. But their larger business model is, in many ways, reshaping the way we think about fast food. At this point, Sweet Green has about 95 restaurants and over 4,000 team members who make seasonal salads and bowls from scratch using sustainably sourced ingredients. I know a lot of people obviously do salad for lunch, but I actually love having something warm at lunch, even in the summer. So I'm into Sweet Green's bowls, like the shumami, which is made with wild rice, beets, and portobello mushrooms. We have the recipe on the Goop site, but I have to say, it doesn't taste as good when I make it at home. I also really like the seasonal elote bowl. It's on Sweet Green's early summer menu. It comes with roasted corn and peppers, warm quinoa, goat cheese, veggies, and spicy sunflower seeds. To get Sweet Green for yourself and find the closest location to you, visit sweetgreen.com. And you can download the Sweet Green app to make ordering even easier and to rack up some rewards like free green salads. And who couldn't use more of those? Okay, break's over. Let's hear more from Andrew Solomon. When you think about the importance of horizontal identities, to quote you, how, with absent those, like, what are we? Well, that's part of the question, absolutely. I mean, we narrow and narrow and narrow the definition of what it is to be human. And as one father said to me, he said, you know, if I think about my son David, I wish that he didn't have Down syndrome or that I could make it go away because for him it's a difficult way of being in the world and I'd like to give him a better and easier life, he said. But I think if we got rid of all of these people, it would be a real loss to humanity. Mm. They have things to tell us and they're a very valuable part of our world. So the personal and the social wish are in some form of opposition. And I think also I met some people who actually seem very happy with Down syndrome, and, you know, which is often associated actually with great happiness. And some people who really struggled and suffered with it. There were people who wanted to be cured. There were people who didn't want to be cured. It had to do with their personalities. It had to do with the version of Down syndrome that they seemed to have. It had to do with a thousand other factors. But we should have scope in our society for people who want to change and for people who want to stay the same. What do you think that... What is the lesson? Like when you surveyed this world of neurodiversity and diversity in general, prodigies, people who are tra- identified as transgender, like what, what do you think is coming through? Like what are they channeling? Like when you see people who are exceptional? You know, I mean, that's a very big question. Uh, <laughs> you can answer <laughs> thank it. Thank you. Oh, well. Um, I appreciate the optimism. No big deal. I think that what people really want is to be able to define things for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was somebody who I know was the daughter of a friend of mine who had dwarfism and who hated being a dwarf. And she desperately wanted to have limb lengthening surgery. And her parents said to her, you know, that's unbelievably agonizing. It can result in neurological damage and it can go horribly wrong. And it involves years of being in braces and in wheelchairs. And she wanted limb lengthening and she ultimately got it. And she's much happier now that she's had her limbs lengthened and looks like a sort of slightly short person and no longer like a dwarf. Mm -hmm. And I met other people who had dwarfism who had found so much meaning and so much experience in what they were doing. And you mentioned the chapter on prodigies, which I put in to indicate that actually being extraordinary in what are generally conceived of as positive ways is also very stressful. I mean, prodigies like children with disabilities don't have any peers. Either Mm -hmm. they're talking to people who 
understand what they're talking about but don't really want to be in conversation with a six-year-old or they're talking <laughs> with other six-year-olds who have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. And so they have no, no peer group and no circle around them. And there was one young man who was a prodigy whom I interviewed at some length when I was working on the book, Mark Yu. And I had said to his mother, he was at that point, he was seven, and he had taken the SATs, and he was doing advanced mathematics, and he was playing the piano in the most extraordinary way. And I had said to his mother, you know, do you worry at all about Mark having a normal childhood? And she said, Mark, sit down and play something on the piano. And he sat down and played a piece of Chopin with such depth and such emotional complexity and such nuance that I was completely blown away and couldn't quite believe that it was being done by this kid who also had Sesame Street videos up in his room. And he finished playing and his mother turned to me and said, you see, he's not a normal child. Why should he have a normal childhood? Mm. You know, it's a complicated decision. I don't know that it's exactly the position I would have arrived at if I had a child who had those particular abilities, but I recognize the validity of it, and I thought if that was what was working for their family, more power to them. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. But I also, I, you hear prodigies, for, and you're, it's such a mar- – it's like where is that coming – what is what is coming through? You know, and I know you sort of suggest that perhaps – music, because that's what you looked at, is the primary language for some of these, for at least the musical prodigies. But I, it's, it's one of the, I think, great wonders of what it is to be human. To it, s- it's uncanny, because there's a real gap between being precocious and being genuinely a prodigy. And these people who are prodigies appear to be capable of very adult achievements very early on. You know, they're living through a sort of emotional fantasy life. Um, Some people said to me, but how can they know the sort of great emotions of adulthood? And I said, spend a week with a child who's five years old and see how many emotions that child has. They run through an incredible range, even an average five-year-old. They work mostly prodigies in arts that are largely calculated or imitative. So playing the piano or being a prodigy in a sport or in mathematics, they aren't really in interpretive at the level at which writing great literature would be. I mean, we don't read any books that were written by five-year-olds. We don't look very often at paintings that were done by five-year-olds. We don't consider electing five-year-olds to public office or appointing them to chair corporations. (laughs) I don't, anyway, in my narrow, limited way. Emotional age Uh, of a toddler. (laughs) But the... (laughs) I may still be at the emotional age of a toddler, but they can do these extraordinary things, and it's it's very humbling to watch and and to see them and think where where on earth did it come from? But I have to say, having brought up children, it's kind of humbling to experience the way that they acquire knowledge and information. I mean, even non-prodigy children go quite rapidly from being sort of a little lump-like and mostly crying to being able to talk and able to walk and able to think and able to learn and all the rest of it. What I know before. Like- when you were working on this book, you did not have children, and then now you have four? Yes. I, I think your the conversation about who gets to be a father is really interesting, and the biological conversation around that for you is really interesting. Like, I know there obviously is a tendency with gay parents to be like, oh, you should adopt. Like, why bother having a biological child for whatever reason, which I think is interesting that you call that out. 
It's weird. Yes, and I feel like other people who are not gay seem to want to have children to whom they are biologically connected, and they aren't all necessarily out adopting. And the book I'm working on now is a book about expanding ideas of family and includes a chapter on adoption in which I examine, among other things, the sort of dark side of adoption that often you bring children out of a context that makes sense to them into a context that will never make sense to them and that adoption can be highly problematic. I mean, it can work out well or it can work out very badly. But there is an inherent narcissism in having children. It's a continuation of yourself into the future. But there's quite a lot of narcissism in adopting and thinking, I'm going to give this child a better future than this Mm -hmm. child would ever have had otherwise. And I think the decision to have children is in some ways a kind of it comes from a deep longing. It's one of the most profound impulses we have. And it doesn't really make sense. There are a lot of work. They're very demanding. I mean, they're also very gratifying and wonderful, but in ways that are hard to conceptualize fully. And I feel like some people are drawn to adoption and some people are drawn to biological procreation and all of it really, you know, whether to have a child and how to have a child are both decisions that feel very urgent and about which people feel incredibly strongly and that people, when confronted about them, have a hard time explaining or defending. It's true. So how has it been for you? Well, I love being a father. I was worried when I first came out that being gay meant that I would never be able to have children. And I spent years trying to go back and forth between dating women and dating men. And I knew I really was more drawn to men. But I thought if I could make it work with a woman, I would be able to have a family. And while I was torturing myself over all of that, the world changed and it became possible to be gay and to have children. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent, gay people of my generation who have children, and I'm 55 now, most of us really grew up thinking it wouldn't be possible and there's still a sense of astonished revelation about the fact that it did turn out to be possible and that we do have these children whom we had so much dreamed about. I found it, I mean, it's fascinating and all of that. It's also just the the kind of, I mean, I remember my mother saying to me, the love for your children is unlike any other feeling in the world and until you have children, you don't know what it feels like. And That's been very true for me. There are some people who don't want children, and I respect that wish, and I don't feel like everyone has to have children. It's not necessarily right for everyone, but it turned out to be very right for me, and I find the level of engagement and the sort of ache of vulnerability and the closeness and just the surprise. It's a constant set of surprises. Mm -hmm. You think, where did he come up with that? Where did she think of that? How did she get to that point of view? Yeah, It's, It's been the... It's been the great experience of my life. Yeah. Really. Did, I, has it reframed your understanding of your own parents in terms of, because I know that Far From the Tree and so much of it is an exploration of you, feel, you belonging to a horizontal identity and feeling bad about that. Yes. My parents were not initially accepting of the fact that I was gay, and I could tell that long before I came out, and I think it caused me enormous trauma and enormous pain. They were incredibly good parents in almost every other way, and I sometimes feel that I did them a little hard in the book by going on and on about that so much, but it's true. I was gay. It was fundamentally who I was when I told my parents they were very angry about it, Um My mother developed cancer a year later. At one point in a sort of unguarded and angry moment, she said, she said, cancer is brought on women my age by extreme stress. And the extreme stress in my life has been you and this gay thing of yours. And Mm. it was a, a terrible wound that I carried on for a long time. I hope that I can be more 
fundamentally and profoundly accepting of my own children. I try to catch myself when I'm not being accepting of who they are. They're still little enough so that these things haven't surfaced in quite that way. But I feel in a lot of ways that writing the book allowed me to forgive my parents. Mm -hmm. And I feel like having children has also allowed me to forgive them. I'm aware of how hard it is and how hard it is to get everything right. And I know that I'm making mistakes and I don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what their consequences will be. And I accept that my parents did the best that they could and that they had trouble with accepting me for who I was. But you know, they loved me all the way through. And mm -hmm. I've teased apart love and acceptance. And love, I think, should be there and usually is there from the time a child is born. And acceptance is a process and it takes time and it's a struggle. And it's a struggle for everyone, whether their children have horizontal identities or not. And that was the path that my parents were on. And my father came to great acceptance and has been very supportive and very loving in the years since. Yeah, I'm sure. I wonder how much, too, is driven just out of extreme fear for you. It was the age of AIDS, so there was that fear. Mm -hmm. It was an age when gay people were not generally invited into, you know, a lot of social situations. They feared a sense of social exclusion. But I think also, for my mother in particular, there was a sense that she had a construct of her life and it didn't include being the parent of a gay child. It felt like a failure to her, and it felt like her failure, I think in part because there was so much a suggestion that people were gay because of the way they'd been brought up or because of what their parents had done. It, it was a tangled mess. <laughs> <laughs> just a disaster. Do you, what do you think, just looking at your work, which is obviously very much about your own life tangentially what like what what are the most important messages no big deal again <laughs> <laughs> i think the most important message is the one of acceptance of diversity and of difference i mean the book i'm doing now which is about all of these different kinds of families there is an idea somehow that we measure the success of families who differ from the norm by how closely they adhere to the structures of that norm. Mm. So people always say to John and me, for example, so which of you is really the mom? Mm. And we have to sort of say over and over again, you know, neither of us is the mom. George doesn't really have a mom in that sense. We're bringing up our youngest child in the context of not really having a mom, but he does have a surrogate and she's our very, very close friend and she's the biological mother of our other children. It's It's a tangled web to unfurl. But, you know, and I was talking to some lesbians who I was interviewing in London who have children, and I recounted, you know, people always say to us, which is the mom? And one of them said, oh, when people say that to us, I just always say, which chopstick is the fork? Uh, <laughs> and I thought that was a great description of just, you know, this is a different way of doing things, and it works just fine. And so I would like to open up the idea of what a family is. I mean, family has been utterly transformed in the last 25 years. And in the last 25 years, we've all learned a thousand words that have to do with computers, which entered our daily lives about the same time families began to change. And we still have the same 14 words for relatedness that we've always had, mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, cousin. There's no new vocabulary that's been introduced except some prefixes and suffixes that go in front of or behind these words. And I think we need to have a society in which as each new kind of difference emerges, whether it's a difference of a kind of disability, such as I wrote of in Far From the Tree, or a difference in a family structure, such as occurs in the book that I'm writing now, that instead of feeling threatened by that, we feel enriched by that expansion. That's mm -hmm. really the message of the book. It's a it's a kind of how-to manual about how to be enriched by the diversity of the world rather than threatened by it. Yeah, the threatening, I think, is so 
interesting because I think it speaks to the judgment we bring and why these things are so, so triggering and why we feel compelled to have opinions when it's really none of our business for the most part how other people choose to raise their children or conduct their lives. And it's, it's, I don't know what that is, like why we feel – I guess it's because we're human. Yes, and I think we all feel threatened by difference. We all feel we'll be overshadowed by it. We all feel we'll be pushed ourselves away from the center. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's been a steady movement forward toward having a world that's more accepting of difference. I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about the neurodiversity movement. We've talked about deaf rights and dwarfism rights. Nobody had even imagined those things 100 years ago. Nobody right. had really even um, realized them 50 years ago. They're the recent developments, and there's a lot of ink spilled on how much things have changed for gay people and how much more acceptance there is of gay people. But I think overall and by and large, our society is slowly moving toward a greater acceptance of difference and a greater sense of wanting to integrate difference. Yeah. And I think at one point you write, like, we all, it's funny because we all crave exceptionalism, yet we cling to sameness. Yes. And I said in the book, and I strongly believe people who are extraordinary spend the whole time telling you how much they're like everyone else. And people who are absolutely typical spend the whole time trying to convince you that they're extraordinary. I mean, there's this <laughs> funny true. dichotomy of it. And there isn't, a, there isn't a standard for what the good ways are to be extraordinary and what the bad ways are to be extraordinary. What seems like a bad way to be extraordinary now might seem like a good way in 10 years. And what seems like a good way might seem like a bad way. It's to recognize these things are in flux and that the sort of social attitudes towards various kinds of difference are always changing and evolving. Thanks for listening to my chat with Andrew Solomon. For more of his work, check out his film, Far From the Tree, on Hulu. And you can listen to his most recent audiobook, New Family Values. All right, that's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review because I really love feedback. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes. And we'd be honored if you pass the Goop podcast along to a friend. I hope you'll be back with me on Thursday. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.